I'm black, you're white. Now what? So what if I say the wrong thing? You probably will. Who doesn't? But I'll do my best to listen. Maybe if we're humble enough to listen to each other. Maybe if we're brave enough to lean into those difficult conversations. We might. We could. Come up with some answers. Make some real progress. Discover how much we have in common. And appreciate our differences. Now you're talking. Good evening and welcome to another episode, another edition of I'm Black, You're White, Now What? I'm David Conley, communications consultant. And I'm Chris Thurber, clinical psychologist. And we are thrilled to have John Daves with us. We'll introduce John, uh, who's our guest today in just a moment. But to get back to our last episode for just a minute, David, any updates or thoughts on sort of this lost white girl or lost white woman or person syndrome. We talked a lot last episode about different treatment in the media of Mm -hmm. stories that will make headlines and the racial differences in that coverage. I don't know if you have any thoughts. Yeah, well, I've been watching a little bit um, and it's, of course, if you've been following uh, the uh, story with a young lady, Patico, uh, Patito. Uh, I'm sorry, mispronouncing her name, but um, they ended up finding um, her fiance or boyfriend or what have you, uh, finding his remains, um, and so that's you know the update or whatever to that story. And of course, it got a lot of coverage because uh, that's sensational. But one of the other things that has been happening is has been um sort of a slight uptick in the news regarding uh some women of color that have been uh, that were missing during the same time and so i've seen um a few things about that you know but it's in my opinion still not like an equal amount of coverage mm-hmm. um it's it's still kind of like an oh by the way you know uh sort of thing but you know, I, I think we're gonna go. We got a long way to go before uh, folks sort of realize that everybody wants their daughter found. You know, or, or whoever is missing the wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whatever. I I think there's a long way to go before we realize that it's all newsworthy um, and not just um, like we were talking about before. Maybe this they consider this more newsworthy than that, or we'll get more eyes on the screen for advertisers or whatever. Um, I think it'll be a little ways, sadly, to go before we start putting the actual human element above any of the rest of that. So that's a good that's point. That's my and thoughts on it. Yeah, yeah no, I think um, for me too, our discussion really reminded me of how as a consumer of mm-hmm. different sorts of media, whether it's a magazine or a series on Netflix or, you know, a app, that features news, CNN, BBC, whatever it might be. In some ways, I'm a drop in the bucket, but I'm also, as a consumer, contributing to those market statistics. What am I looking at? What do, what do I register as my vote is important? And, you know, mm-hmm. and we should all do that. Um, and we all have choices. So let me introduce our guests tonight. Um, such a pleasure to be sort of coming full circle. I met John Daves when he joined the English department at Phillips Exeter Academy, where I still work. 
And um, in contrast to my spinning my wheels and um, coasting in neutral, John has done amazing things since uh, his six years in the English department at Exeter and is now director of community and equity affairs and a member of the English department at St. Mark's School. So, John, welcome. We're really happy to have you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, um, having me, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. And one of the things that I think David and I have worked sometimes successfully, perhaps sometimes not, to do in this series, I'm Black, You're White, Now What?, is, you know, as the title suggests, just bringing people from different backgrounds, whether that's different socioeconomic backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, ethnic, racial, uh, is, you know, there has to be some next step. It's not a question of just the optics, although that is an important factor, especially, you know, in all kinds of different settings and contexts. But the the challenges that we face as a society, as a, as a species, are not solved by checking boxes. And we are, David and I, trying to model some in-depth conversations, which is why we embrace this kind of long-form podcast and not offer snippets sound and bites. sound bites, but dive into some issues and get into, you know, the raggedy work of um, understanding each other better. I'm curious in your role. And if I remember, this is not the first time that you've been um, in a position of leadership that um, who, you know, some of what your responsibilities include helping people to make progress in social ways. What are some standout moments f- for you in your career where you've seen, whether it's a black person and a white person or, uh, but people of two, you know, very different backgrounds uh, who could potentially clash? Any instances where, you thought, oh, that's right there. That's what we'd love to see more of. That's a success story. Mm-hmm. That that worked out well. These people uh, did more than lip service to the phrase, you know, lean into the discomfort or uh, something. I am curious in, in, in your work, what stands out for you? Uh, you know, I think that the classroom experiences that I've been um, had a pleasure of of being a part of um, really do stand out for me. I, I think about my time around that Harkness table where I listened, learned, and taught out of what I was hearing from my students. And one of the things that I saw in those moments where there wasn't hand raising, there there wasn't um, me kind of leading them through um, a lesson. It was um, learning about the content of our lives through literature 
um, and the bridges that were emerging as they interrogated a text and put it in conversation with their understanding of themselves. And you saw a diversity of social identities and learners um, looking at themselves through a, a learning experience of what the sort of text invite you to think about and feel. Mm. Um, I, I think about what my father would do with me, a man who grew up um, African-American, but could pass for white, uh, but didn't because he saw himself as a man who was completely and utterly sort of proud of his race and the, and the culture and the agility and the self-awareness and all the skills that and the black excellence that came from growing up in Knoxville, Tennessee, and then going to a New England boarding school, Northfield Mount Hermon in the 40s, and then um, teaching at Morehouse and Fisk and getting a um, two Ivy League degrees and being one of the first Black administrators at Educational Testing Service. What I, what I learned from his life is it's not how loud you say something, but who you say it to and how well you make other people that may or may not look like you uh, feel uh, heard and seen, and how within uh, our society, the, the othering that happens to um, all of us in some form or fashion often, whether it's um, you're white and you're coming from a working class background, or you're, you're African American and, and the, the institutional racism, as well as that's the durable piece, um, or the sort of just routine othering that is transient, that is just there in the moment, but is gone, meaning somebody following you at a, you know, in a department store or something. Um, it's, it's that experience that robs you of your visibility and can render you um, invisible. And it's the, the bridging work we do to sort of see each other as human mm -hmm. beings and learn how to do that. And then sort of trying to develop a, a vocabulary that, are, that our, our kids are uh, born into around their identity. Mm -hmm. That I think is the biggest challenge when you run into an, an anxiety about critical race theory or 1619. It's really about not necessarily knowing a language and being able to situate yourself within that identity language and that history um, that is the, the challenge because um, our children um, can lean into that language uh, because it's a reflection of who they are. But for a lot of adults, it's almost as if they're learning a second language and mm -hmm. they're caught between the, the native language that they grew up in with and this target language that seems foreign to their understanding of who they are and the, the history that seems to be behind it. So you think that language um, is 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 the the language is indicative of of like the feeling and the fear, or um, are you saying that just because they don't understand what's actually being said by saying something like you brought up critical race theory by saying, "Hey, we want to teach this," um, you're saying that maybe they don't understand that it's really about everybody trying to understand each other as opposed to how they may be hearing it 
based on past language Correct. You know, to say that they're going to be excluded. Because what I hear a lot of times too with that in speak sticking with that example is that when you have uh critical race theory, you're going to somehow victimize uh the white students in the in the class. And so you're saying that, that is that's that's an old language that they're used to uh working under. Yes. Um I I, I think um there's a anxiety or fear mm-hmm. of looking at white racial identity um and seeing it through the eyes of others. Mm-hmm. And what what that is is sort of um lenses mirrors and kind of a second sight the lens is well what 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 lens are you seeing the world through you know that could be geography that could be your gender um that could be your racial identity that could be the lens that you're bringing to a country or the lens that you're raised with within that country right so mm-hmm. that can be an immigrant experience and then can you hold a mirror up to that and then can you see your social identity, your entry into this setting uh, through somebody else's eyes and a different point of view? Um, well, if you have had transient or durable experiences of being othered or being labeled as not part of or not admitted and accepted within, um, you're comfortable having to see yourself through the eyes of others. You know Du Bois's definition of double consciousness, of having to do that. If you're white, I've always wondered, well, you've been at the center of an experience, and perhaps if you're white male and you're middle to upper middle class or coming from an elite background, what is that space where you mm-hmm. had to see yourself from a different point of view, where um, your sense of individuality is in question, meaning that if you're other, you know that if you do something wrong, it's going to impact anybody else that looks like you, um, especially if you're othered as a African-American, Asian, whatever the racial identity is that, that, that can lead to that othering, that can lead to that transient or durable um, experience with discrimination. But if you're white, what are the instances where you might experience that othering, right? Mm. Uh, January 6th, maybe? Oh, wait, I mm. didn't know mm. that I was white or I didn't understand that that I have a, a, a racial identity, that, that I could be seen in a different way other than the ways in which I want to define myself. And there have only been certain sort of moments where that, that, kind of othering or that kind of, wow, I have to understand and look at myself from a perspective as a white person and what the implications of that might mean, or as a white male after me too, or there are things I can say and can't say. I thought it was just a race thing where I didn't want to say the wrong thing. Now I have to think mm-hmm. about this from a gender perspective. So, so you have these moments now where we we have an opportunity to do some bridging based upon a vantage point of feeling othered in some form or fashion that has now um, impacted all of us in some form or fashion. Do you think? Uh, how, that, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Chris. Sorry. Oh, just going to ask whether COVID 
helped or hurt that bridging effort? If there was a silver lining, it was that it showed the interconnectedness of our humanity, that we were all um, and still are um, responsible for each other's fate, right? We, we were wearing or need to wear masks, not only for ourselves, but for um, your neighbor, for your family, for your, um, for your, for your community. Um, we have to, um, when the vaccine came, we have to share it not only within our own nation, but globally, because, you know, if, if there's a new variant of COVID in India, well, that'll eventually affect all of us. So there's a global, there's a local, there's an individual responsibility that we're still wrestling with. And the more of an elite or highly developed country, we're having to look at um, broadening our understanding of what it means um, to be part of an interdependent, interconnected world. So that's the silver lining. I, I think the challenge, of course, has always been we've looked at education as as access. And now we have to look at it as inclusive. And we have to think about what what that really means to have an inclusive global understanding of how we're interconnected and how we have to develop um, skills, vaccines, pills, masks, skills, tools to do bridge building Mm -hmm. so that we have an understanding of our shared humanity, which then is connected with something like addressing social uh, justice or social injustice, which is then connected with the environment. And these are, these are um, vital aspects of um, whether or not we're going to do the bridge working or we're going to unbridge because of our fear and anxiety about these challenges and um, democracy and, and, governments born by the people and that that struggle um, is now more present because the unbridging leads to authoritarianism and January 6th and other things that we as a as a I hope as a as a world is is leaning more into uh, bridging and global citizenship than alienation and authoritarianism as a response to these challenges that are impacting all of us. I was going to ask you, though, um, a two-part question, I guess, how in in your work and just in your observation, how difficult um, are you seeing that bridge building? Um, How difficult are you seeing it being, especially with um, like a, a sort of sort of movement to make sure it it isn't you know um based probably on a lot of that fear and everything that um that we were talking about you know when it comes to the language and the and the things that you know would surround something like critical race theory but just just understanding each other period there's a um i don't know like a like a strong sort of resistance to it also so i'm and and i'm even even with people who are trying to do um 
diversity, equity, and inclusion work, uh, there's a, a thing where there's a lot of box checking going on. So people will seem like they're doing it, but they're not really uh, invested in it, companies, uh, schools, uh, all of that. So with that type of, you know, thing going on with the direct movement uh, against it, but also the indirect movement where it's like, yeah, of course we're about that. No, we're really not. You know, you got a lot of people who are um, directors of diversity, equity, and inclusion at corporations, but they have no power to actually impact the company, that kind of thing. With that, um, you know, how difficult is, is, is it going to be to build those bridges and then recognizing that difficulty what are some of the things that we can do to to overcome that? Yeah, so th- this goes back to that sort of white second sight challenge. So if your mind is culturally and your habit of mind is, well, tell me, give me the training so I just don't say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the unbridging. Right. Because now you're not doing you're not doing the individual work to develop self-awareness and you're not taking um, responsibility of leaning in and doing your own personal journey to understand Mm -hmm. yourself from somebody else's point of view. Um, When you take that out and you take it further and you live it out within an institution, um, you can expose your whole corporation or your school Mm -hmm. community to, um, you know, consultants and trainers and all that. But if it's just exposure without engagement, then you're not developing the self-awareness skills. You're not understanding the, uh, the needs of the time. And a director of DEI can only consult. They don't have a toolbox that says I can hold you accountable for, right? And even if it's a president, they can't hold you accountable for learning how to do the work of learning this language and applying it to your life. Um, And if you think about masks that we wear, right? For our own survival before we got the vaccine, well, what were the masks we were wearing before we literally were wearing those masks, right? Um, well, we were socialized to think because we grew up at a certain address and because our skin was lighter than somebody else's, we were given a mask to think we were superior to somebody else, that we were entitled to certain uh, experiences, um, comforts, uh, and, you know, there there's a... If, if that's one kind of socialization and masking, social justice and unmasking and thinking about yourself in relation to a community is a form of social justice. Mm-hmm. And looking at a history that says your, your sense of superiority or sense of self is on the backs of or on the product of this othering, this um, reducing dehumanizing um well that that's hard to stomach that's hard to look at yourself from that that history and think well 
the positive is understanding yourself within this history and embracing learning about yourself within this history rather than looking at it as a, as a negative and just thinking about finding ways to rationalize uh, status quo or not looking at this other perspective and why way in which somebody is situating you within this living history. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's the challenge because before it was, well, this might, this, this might be the right thing to check the box on, but now you've got demographics that go along with change. Mm-hmm. So what do you do now? Do you learn how to see yourself and your social identities uh, within the context of diversity so that you have an agile and self-aware understanding of yourself? You can communicate who you are. You can coordinate with diversity. You can be collaborative with people that look like you and don't look, and you can creatively reflect. Or do you turn inward and say, no, I want somebody else to protect all of what I think I already have. And I want it to be somebody authoritarian who takes the work that I should do as a person and as we should do as a people away um, so I don't have to look at any of it. And I think um, we as a country, uh, especially with regards to domestic terrorism, are really um, struggling with um, what direction we're going to go in. Because one party is saying democracy. Another party is saying we will think for you Mm -hmm. and we will protect this 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 history that has nothing to do with an interconnected world and a history that is complicated and a history that we need to lean into to understand so that we're better um, for ourselves and for each other. There's a book by Jonathan Metzl, who's a doctor at the uh, Vanderbilt University. He said, "The dying of whiteness." And if you get caught up in the 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 sense of superiority, the sense of privilege. Uh, it can become very isolating and it can lead to all kinds of forms of uh, threats to your health and wellness. And he said, mm-hmm. he's, he's seeing that in terms of not only the, the mental threats, but also some of the, the biological threats, especially if you're not getting access to that social class mobility what are the things that you might get involved in? Well, drugs, well, alcohol, well, guns. Um, where are the various places? Where are the places where you say, I don't trust science and I'm not going to get a wear a mask or I'm not going to get vaccinated? Um, where are those places? Well, they're Midwest and the South. What does that then mean to your overall sense of self, health, wellness, and relation to the world, relation to people that look like you and other people that don't? John, when you were at Phillips Exeter Academy, um, I think your second year, you won a teaching award and used that money to create the Exeter Diversity Institute. Can you talk a little bit about what it was that you created? Because I feel like it's prescient. That was, what, 2003, four? Oh, when I created the Institute? Yeah. Yeah, so it, it was 2013, and oh, uh, okay, a little bit later than I thought. But the point is, yeah, not last year. This way, you were not, not jumping la- not on the bandwagon. Year. You were you were creating the bandwagon, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. other people jumped onto. Right, right. So I was I was very moved by the the idea of 
the kind of anti-lesson plan. Okay. That that we were moving from um, no lesson plan to making meaning out of teaching through conversation and teaching each other through conversation that, that, that everybody's a learner in the room. And that by sitting with the students instead of at the board telling them what to, what to think, and then we're kind of regurgitating it back in some form, that they'd have to unpack, trust, respect their peers um, in, in the value of the learning experiences that would come from them. So I was like, imagine if we tried that with adults where they learned about themselves through working like a jazz ensemble and stopping certain making of meaning experiences by looking at a text and thinking about what are the various ways in which we learn how to listen and learn how to learn from, from each other and how that would enable us to look at the techniques and skills of having a dialogue, which is more about trying to understand each other than debate, and then arriving at certain decisions through discussion about why an argument or perspective is more compelling based upon evidence and, and points of view, and then arriving at a shared view or point of view on what were the major takeaways of a learning experience. Well, that also kind of seemed to be the difference between how teaching a doctor um, to be a doctor, which is learn by doing, to now a doctor having to learn about the various perspectives of taking care of the health and wellness of the patient. And it's not just about getting a tumor out, it's about also the quality of life. So you're looking at a nutritionist, you're looking at a variety, you're looking at somebody's mental health based upon hearing that they're stage four pancreatic cancer. You, you, you're looking at a number of different points of view in the same way that those students were learning around the table. Well, what if we taught teachers that perspective and also taught them um, DEI, social identity literacy that included race, class, LGBTQ plus entry points into a country, into a global understanding of yourself so that um, you can make meaning rather than just have students follow meaning. How successful was that in your eyes and how has that evolved, um, you know, after the years that you led the Exeter Diversity Institute, you obviously did not stop doing that work and and uh bringing teachers into uh settings conversations where they could understand bridging where they could better perhaps than they did understand um an approach to educating people that was less about telling and more about discussing and perspective taking. I mean, there must have been some, there must have been many successes. There must have been some fails along the way. I'm, I'm so curious, especially, you know, you were doing that. And as you said, 2013, um, you know, pre George Floyd, pre black at, and it, I'm just fascinated to understand how it has changed, gotten easier, gotten harder, uh, 
become more criticized because, oh, this is performative. And I mean, and what I hear you saying, among other things, is it doesn't, of course, efforts to bridge fail when it is checking a box, when it is performative. And the way you describe the inception of the Exeter Diversity Institute, sort of the opposite of performative, you uh, one shining example of getting people to uh, be in conversation, acquire understanding and vocabulary that puts them in a better position to be better people, um, as, all, as well as better educators. But um, yeah, successes, stumbles, what's that been like? Yeah, um, I, I, there, there definitely was some pushback when I introduced the idea because um, you have to learn a new approach to what you've been doing. You know, if you've been looking at literature from the arrangement of words and paragraphs and language and how it created images to now looking at a literary agenda and um, what the author was inviting you to think about from a racial and a social class perspective or a gender perspective or an LGBTQ perspective. Well, now there are new lenses coming into the work that you're doing. So there was pushback from that perspective in 2013. Um, I think today it's comparable, but now it's about um, who should have access to the conversation. So mm-hmm. if, if you're white and privileged, there's an assumption that, well, you're white and privileged. What do you know about the struggle of Toni Morrison? Uh, well, probably know a lot because you're you're now looking at a, at at what whiteness is from a point of view of somebody who's lived with that experience so you belong at the table um well you know you what what do you what do you know about um the founding fathers and you know if you wear them in halloween you're racist well no because the founding fathers also came out with democracy that we uh love and, and aspire to realize even though they were flawed human beings who owned slaves which was the um, means of status um, during that time period. So when you're able to sort of look at um, history from multiple points of view, we all belong at the table. Hmm. And then it's all about these sort of skills that we have to then use to develop habits of mind, to look at ourselves and our past in a new way. Um, if we do that, we um, we develop a shared humanity and we can model democracy. If we don't do that, we model authoritarianism, isolation, alienation, and um, power over compassion, empathy, and uh, a recognition of our humanity. Um, history has always been about this struggle. The question is, um, who do we want to be? And what do we want to learn from those moments where we look up and hold that mirror up and say, um, do we want to go back? Do we want to say that we as human beings can't learn and grow and evolve? Um, do we want to say that um, history might not be linear, but that we can't ever make progress? Uh, that we are all going to be kind of this cyclical 
kind of like Yeats's poem, The Second Coming, um, you know, the gyres of history just continually turn and, and then we awaken um, a second coming that's half man and has, half beast stumbling towards Bethlehem waiting to be born. Is that the cycle we want for our lives or is there something that we can do to say, no, we as human beings can learn. Um, we, we can learn and learn through tragedy of something like a pandemic and see the value and lean into science, lean into education, lean into the better version of our souls themselves. Let me ask this question, I guess, kind of from me is to, I'd like to get both of your perspectives on it. Um, because a lot of times when um, just the notion of diversity, equity, and inclusion is is put to an institution or a corporation or what have you, the anticipated pushback is um, from the white male establishment that they won't uh, want it because they want to maintain the status quo, et cetera. But I'm I'm submitting because I'm I'm learning that there's also like a sort of genuine fear of being in that conversation because it's so easy these days with everybody being sort of hypersensitive to say or do a thing that will get you in some quicksand and you'll never be able to get out of that. Um, And so then to me, that's sort of like the other side of breaking down those bridges. Um, So I just kind of like, you know, both of you ought to kind of speak on what you think about that. Uh, You know, you, John, having, you know, been working diligently to, to build these bridges and, and Chris as well, but I imagine it's, it's difficult and different for you, Chris, being going into some of these situations like, you know, so maybe you can speak to kind of what that's like for you or if any of those types of fears that people might have would, would have been even realized by you or thought about or whatever, just, you know, what do you guys think about that? Whoever can go first, then. <laughs> I mean, I think listening to John describe the importance of perspective taking and if I'm using this phrase correctly, John, this, um, I think you called it the second lens, but seeing one's self through the lens of another person's experience, that, that takes time, that takes work and it, it can be threatening. Um, as you've described the knee jerk reaction to a lot of things that are proposed in order to prevent othering are misconstrued as um, like, well, if if we include this person, just so you know, you're going to get less. Or if we include this person, just so you know, uh, forget all the things you're used to. I feel very fortunate that in my life as a white male, my experience of including whoever or whatever, um, and by whatever, I mean different experiences, whoever, people who are different from me, has been 
things got much better for me. Uh, and mm -hmm. so I, um, I feel that that's a blessing. It also created, and David can attest to this, some naivete on my part, thinking that, uh, like, well, well, I therefore have been fully enlightened. Um, and it, mm -hmm. you know, turns out I was an arrogant jackass for thinking that. Um, and none of us gets to the point where we say, okay, now I've learned it all, or now I've mm -hmm. understood it all. But um, I'm an impatient person by nature. So it was easy to tell myself, uh, you know, I got it, especially as a, as a clinician where I'm doing a lot of listening every day and trying to be um, sensitive to different people's experiences and choose my words carefully in my impatience to uh, participate in a lot of the, you know, different programs and initiatives at Exeter, some student led, some faculty and staff led. I've definitely made some significant missteps and it's been painful. It's been also an important way for me to learn. And, you know, thank goodness I could talk to David about it because I needed to talk to somebody who was not white and not part of Exeter and who knew me really well. And that's a short list in my life. Mm -hmm. And um, someone who's going to not sugarcoat the reaction that they have when I tell them my, you know, woeful story of suffering. Um, and that's an even shorter list. Um, so it, you know, uh, I guess in answer to your question, David, I think that um, my experience has been um, that whenever I've had the good fortune of participating in some of the conversations that John is talking about, some of the conversations that you and I have, David, tried to model, the result has always been personal enrichment. Um, and, and I desperately want to, um, I want other people to have that experience, right? But I'll just end my comment with this anecdote. It is, it's one thing to talk to, um, for example, you know, the two of you who, whose careers and professional training, are, you know, are each of us different from one another. Um, we share different things in common, things that are different, but we share a kind of, commitment. And we also share an educational background that at least gives us some traction uh, and not guaranteed productivity talking to each other. But I certainly feel optimistic sitting down with the two of you, for example, to have a conversation about anything. I'm going to learn a lot. I'm going to be able to share. Then I have my neighbor, you know, a few doors down who is 20 years older than I am, but also a white male who knocks on my door, true story, four weeks ago, and wants me to sign a petition 
to have the town of Exeter town council. We don't have a mayor, so it's just it is a you know town run by a committee. Create a rule or ordinance or something that limits the decibel level of musical performances that occur in the Riverside uh, Parkway, Swayze Parkway, you probably remember. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'll leave his name out. Why would you, why would you want to, what, tell me what's the motivation behind lowering the volume, um, you know, for the three or four months of the summer on Thursday nights, even being a, you know, a quarter of a mile away from Swayze Parkway, like I can hear the music. It's really cool. It's, it's like one of the things I associate with the summer and some of it's music I know, some of it's music I don't know, um, but it's very celebratory and upbeat and whatever. And he said, well, when they had this Black Lives Matter thing at the beginning of the summer, my my windows were rattling. Uh, he lives closer. And I thought to myself, I can, I can respond in a lot of ways right now, but let me start with what he mentioned bothered him, which was that his windows were rattling. Okay. And like, he clearly wasn't at the concert, but maybe he's not at any of the concerts. So I said, that must've been um, like, it must have really rattled your concentration or I didn't use the word rattle. That was how he described the windows, but hard to concentrate. Or if you wanted to take a nap or, you know, it was just, you didn't put the music on. And then he said again, well, you know, it's all this black lives matter stuff. So I said, well, I, you know, to myself, I can't let this comment now be lofted out twice and not respond to that piece of it. I don't think this is a volume issue, but I said, what is it about, Black Lives Matter that is bothersome or upsetting to you, separate from the volume of the music. Uh, and he just said, you going to sign the damn petition or not? And all <laughs> right. And like, so I don't, I'm stuck right now. This is kind of where I am in my learning. Like I'm great uh, learning from and, adding to conversations where I feel like there's the some common ground. Uh, I don't know what to do with my, you know, 75 year old racist neighbor. I don't know where the, I don't know where the conversation starts. I, there, it must start somewhere, but you know, if, if as another white person, I can't even, in a in the most open-ended way have a talk about it i you know i don't know yeah i i, I think there there are a number of layers to to what you just shared one is um self-awareness stamina um i remember um my um my wife wanted me to go to a prep for prep event which is uh uh, alumni event prep for prep are you know students that are selected from typically urban areas to be um, sort of 
uh, learn the stamina to have to see themselves from a from a different point of view or a different lens mm. and 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 have academic talents but they need to get the sort of social emotional psychological preparation to 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 be able to handle the rigor of of an exeter and to be to be vulnerable and to see vulnerability as a strength and to to build a kind of team of peers and adults to help them help themselves to set them up for success. So, you know, I'm going into the room and I'm excited to say, you know, I taught at Exeter and I had remarkable prep for prep kids and I'm so excited to share my story. And, you know, my my wife looks at me who, you know, grew up in rural North Carolina, but also knew the prep for prep kids from Chapel Hill in her time um, as a, as a, um, law student at Georgetown. And she's like, John, you sounded like a, a black anthropologist and you were sharing your story about your students as if you were sort of saying, you know, Hey, I know your experience and I want to hear your experience and please share your experience because of what, what I know about the students. And don't you think that they know how good they those students are because they were once those students and you're, you're, you're in a room of black and brown folks that are successful and have used that opportunity to get to where they are. So, you know, when you say that, are you telling them anything they don't already know? How about asking them what, what their experience was? And I, you know, that was a hard moment because I thought I was a self-aware guy, right? That was, that was, that was a hard, um, mirror that she put up in front of me and I had to look at myself from a different point of view. And I was like, Oh, you know, that hurt a little bit. So we all have, and that's when you moments. said to her, are you going to sign the damn petition? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You know, I was like, you know, there's these defensive, Oh, you don't see me. What are you talking about? Are you, are you calling me, are you calling me um, Carlton from the Fresh Prince? What are, what are you trying to say? <laughs> Right. <laughs> exactly. 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 I'm Will exactly. Smith. I, I'm the smooth. Right. Guy. Right. <laughs> I, you know, what, do you, what do you mean? You, you think I know right. the Carlton dance? I don't know the Carlton dance. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. You, That's you funny. calling me Fuji right now? Right. Exactly. I mean, so, 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 so there's that piece of it, right? Mm-hmm. Which is when the when the intent doesn't match the impact. Mm-hmm. Then there is what uh, Christopher Hayes wrote about in his book, Colony Within a Nation. Oh, I haven't. When when you look at it and you say, huh, so the way we arrange our neighborhoods where there's a colony and a nation. The colony is where people of color have been relegated Mm -hmm. and have been others. The nation is the the pristine neighborhood where you you shouldn't hear any noise. You definitely shouldn't hear any Black Lives noise. Right. Mm-hmm. So when when that othering creates locales where some people are relegated and other people are able to live in the nation and dream and and be innocent or unaware of that other history and that ongoing history of kind of structural racism and redlining and the like. Whoa. So now you're saying you 
need to develop self-awareness stamina. You need to get in shape. And for some folks, that's going to be really hard and it will take the impact of a reckoning to impact their lives in some way, perhaps, for them to want to climb that self-awareness ladder. Mm -hmm. Um, And some people might not ever climb that ladder. And then it's about what kind of coalition of people that is diverse, inclusive, wants to do the bridging, wants to develop the stamina, um, because one is the right thing to do, and two, it's the future. Well, that's the question. Will that happen? Mm -hmm. Because not everybody is going to buy in to those skills. Hasn't happened throughout history. But how many people will develop those skills so the habits of mind change? Mm -hmm. And that question about courage and stamina is still yet to be determined. Mm. And it will it will like dictate to us whether or not we have more years of hope and movement towards a shared understanding, or more years of alienation, isolation, the unraveling of democracy, a a, a lurch towards authoritarianism, um, uh, sign petitions as a way of blocking out the noise of the the present and the future, and it's tied to 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 the past. Yeah. In the schools, though, what are you seeing more of the, um, the, you know, the positive or hopeful or more of the uh, doom and gloom side of that? Um, it, It really does depend. I know at a lot of schools, there's like a community within a community of students, and it's often through kind of affinity groups. Um that know how to apply that language to their lives, communicate about it, be able to talk about who they are as learners through it, be able to coordinate with peers and be collaborative and coordinate information and reflect and become very sort of agile learners of, a, of the experience. Mm-hmm. Then you have another group of kind of privileged kids um, that are living in that, that realm of, of innocence and are, are awakened and shocked and rattled um, by that by that noise, but don't know necessarily how to communicate and articulate what they're seeing and hearing. And then there are adults that have been conditioned to think, well, I'm colorblind and I'm not supposed to see any of this um, because that's how I was raised. So you have all of that. And then you have ways of, um, you know, uh, the authoritarian party has ways of always stoking that fear without directly saying it. And then sometimes now loudly saying it because that's the the post-Trump sort of era um, to push, ignore, deny um, the pressing need to do the bridging, to develop the stamina, uh, to understand your identity in a new way, to develop the self-awareness skills that lead to habits of mind, 
um, that will help us um, support one another and save us from ourselves. So it, it, again, it really does come down to um, which side of this is going to win. When I often look about it, I say, well, the marketing and the cultivating of, of fear and anxiety um, to win elections, to obtain and maintain power versus um, not as savvy at doing that, maybe having a hard time um, standing by their principles of what they know that what's right. But at the end of the day, being messy problem solvers. Mm. So you're looking at two sides of what it means to govern and understand yourself. And it's also a reflection of what direction might we be heading and what will be the cost if we fall with the former rather than the latter. Mm -hmm. I, I know we're getting close to our time and I want to be respectful. I also would love, John, for you to give the audience and me some uh, food for thought when and I say me, not that I speak for all white people, except I do. I, I, I should just say, I, I understand. I was, I was about to say from I what I've read, white you have been elected. Yeah, I mean, yeah. can we just put it out on the table? It's the whole reason I do right. the show. I mean. Finally um, revealed here, folks. <laughs> uh, what? I'm, I'm talking about building stamina. And I told you how much it has, you know, over, especially over the last couple of years meant to me to have David as one of my closest friends and confidants. And not everyone has a heterogeneous group of friends. We, I think it's human nature. We tend to surround ourselves by similar like-minded people. It's less threatening. It doesn't feel like we're going to lose anything. Um, what is your advice, and it could be something to watch or read or just think about, when for a person who's not a member of a traditionally underrepresented minority, uh, that is to say they are part of whatever the majority culture is, what is a good thing to help them feel less threatened? What is a good thing to help them have more stamina. I mean, if I could wave a magic wand, I'd want everyone as part of their high school education to have a year in a radically different culture. Um, and that's not going to solve the world's problems, but boy, it's going to get us a lot closer to understanding. You know, I did a gap year in France. That's not a radically different culture. I was living with white families. I was, uh, I encountered a, a lot of anti-Semitism, so it wasn't without tension and growth and learning. But um, what are your ideas for how to build stamina if you are in the majority culture? Stamina for the bridging. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a it's a few things um, that lead to that stamina. Um, watch CNN and MSNBC and Fox. Think about what you're hearing, how, and why. 
um, go to a predominantly um, black, brown, Asian supermarket and sit in being the only. What are you thinking? What does that look like to you? How are people responding to you? I remember when I I gave a talk at a school and a woman shared her experience, a white woman shared her experience of, of being a graduate, white graduate student at a historically black college and university. And she said, I learned so much from being a minority. And then I learned even more about what it means to be white because I had the option of the ability to leave. Hmm. Right? So if you put yourself in a position where you're learning about yourself through discomfort, that then leads to stamina, that then leads to the questions, that then leads to the skills, that leads to self-aware habits of mind. And then you start to ask yourself and other people questions. And then you can say, is what I hear, what I feel, what I see you saying is, or I'm understanding is, and then you're a, an active learner. And then yeah. maybe some of that fear and anxiety moves away because you might not have the answers, but you're starting to ask some of the right questions. That's beautiful. Thank you. That's, that's, um, that, I mean, you actually have to be like going to the gym to do that. I mean, when you think about it, um, I was just sitting here wondering, and I'm putting you on the spot, Chris, but I'm just curious, like, what's the last uh, Black movie you went to the theater to see? Black Panther. Is mm-hmm. that what you mean? Like, with okay. predominantly Black actors? With a predominantly Black actors, okay. Yeah. I'm a, and the only reason I'm going to take Black Panther off, the, which is one of my, uh, you know, uh, favorite movies for a number of reasons of what it did for me, I'm going to just take that off, off the table in a way because it's marvel do you know what okay I mean? yeah yeah um so marvel to me is like vegas right so right. it's like go to the casino that's about africa you know what i mean so <laughs> I, but but what what's the you know what i mean other yeah. other than say say black panther would there have been would there be another one um fences uh mean okay. Was a, I didn't see the play. I saw a film of the play. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I but you saw the Denzel uh, Viola one in the movie theater? I, I saw it on TV. I mean, I saw, Right, that's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking yeah. you, when was the last time you went to a movie theater oh, okay. and sat where the black people were yelling at the screen, uh, girl, oh. run! You know, yeah. that kind of... Yeah, where yeah. you had the real experience. <laughs> experience john know what i'm talking about you know what you... <laughs> i do i do i do <laughs> uh, i i mean never yeah 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 um and that's that that's that only he's talking about too yeah. because you know what's interesting about that it's it's a thing that and i'm saying this because movies are sensitive to me but it's a thing that that we do all the time I mean, yeah, we go yeah, to movies yeah. and when we're the only 
black people in the theater watching a film and, and the themes are supposed to be universal. Um, but you know, you have the same things about family and all those kinds of things in black movies, uh, movies will say, you know, we're predominantly black cast, black movies. And what I would hear from white friends of mine about when I say, have you seen this movie or that? Uh, they were their reason for not going is they didn't want to be the only grains of salt in the pepper shaker or something oh, like yeah. that. There would be some, some statement that was made. Like, and I'd say, well, that's interesting that, you know, you, you were more likely to make that choice or to even get, you know what I mean? Like, like the expectation is not necessarily there for us to not, you know, do it. So it's just interesting, but that would be one of those, um, great experiences yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that John is talking about, you know, um, and and what you you know could learn from that because oh, I, sure. I submit that that uh, you would there would be things in those movies that would touch you like any other movie, you know, because yeah. that's what it is—it's the human experience, but it's it's told through a particular lens or whatever. Yeah. So, um, yeah, let me ask you, John. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, oh, go ahead. Heard. I'm sorry. Uh, no, I was going to ask a question, but you stay on. Yeah, you go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I didn't want to ask it if you were going to say something that was about this, and then I'll ask my question after. Okay. Um, I, I was just thinking about the socialization process of of constantly being the black um, watching watching white films. Mm. Um, you know, it took me a while to even become aware of some of the films that I grew up watching had no presence or no reflection of me in it. So mm-hmm. um, St. Elmo's Fire, 16 Candles, mm-hmm. Weird Science. I mean, that those mm-hmm. were the movies that I saw, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Breakfast yeah, yeah. Club. And I'm like, oh, wait mm-hmm. a minute. Huh. It's almost as mm-hmm. if I didn't exist. And then I watched, then I watched Friends. I was like, oh, that's New York City? Um, that's mm-hmm. not the New York that I know. I mean, there's, there, there, you know, in anywhere in New York, even Upper West Side, you're going to see some diversity. But it was like right. all white. <laughs> and then yeah. they've got the yeah. one black girlfriend. So, you know, it, it, it's fascinating once you start to think about that socialization process, that normalization process that you don't even question when you're not in the story yeah absolutely so so you know what chris said which is really important black panther and then fences um well i i you know i'm not sure how many white people could even come up with two absolutely yeah right so you know and how big of a deal it was that you had you know, an all black cast for a Marvel movie that was successful. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. So, so, so these are the things that again are about this sort of self awareness stamina because they're like, oh wow, we can make a profit off of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. black excellence, and it's not reducing black people to dehumanizing stereotype threats. So, but the irony, of course, is when when's Black Panther two happen? Yeah, um, play the role. Suppose, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. so, so that that's this question of of, of progress. And uh, there was this other piece about 
you know, um, virtue performing and woke culture that came out of uh, um, Chris's question. Mm -hmm. And it said that that kind of cancel culture, not being able to look at a different point of view or perspective is also part of the challenge, right? Because we have to be able to um, understand Fox and that point of view, as well mm -hmm. as we understand the point of view of, of CNN and MSNBC to be comfortable because um, there are a lot of people that were only watching MSNBC and CNN that were shocked when Donald Trump won, mm -hmm. right? So that self-awareness skill and stamina goes, goes both ways. Um, and we need to be able to understand that, to know that what we're fighting against and why what we're fighting against is so effective. Um, because it, it, we are in a time where democracy is is still um, in peril. We don't know whether this story is going to be authoritarian or democratic in our lifestyle, right? So, so that is a question because one party has decided on a, authoritarianism. Um, so that is why these self-awareness skills um, to the habits of mind to understanding ourselves in relation to others is just so important. Right before we go, John, I want to go back right quick to something uh, where we were kind of talking about the box checking of uh, organizations and corporations. So if I am the newly appointed uh, director of diversity and equity inclusion for my organization or whatever. And then I realize that what they're doing is making sure that they can put the press release out that says Davis now, uh, the new DEI, uh, you know, VP or whatever. But I don't feel like the company is like serious about the buy-in. I'm finding their buy-in uh, to it to be more performative what would you suggest as some of the things I can begin to do that would really be able to impact the organization like I obviously would want to do if I went after a position like that? Because in theory, I wouldn't be going to just sit in the office and collect the check, you know? Right. Um, everybody's talking about tax, task force. We need a task force mm -hmm. for this, we need a task force for that. Um, I was asked at my current school to come up with a task force. Um, so I said, huh, okay, well, I need a task force that represents all of the aspects of a school community. Mm -hmm. So one is constituency engagement, which is admission advancement and communications. Another is student experience, everything outside of the traditional classroom. Um, including athletics. Another mm -hmm. is teaching and learning, what and how we teach. And in that fourth quadrant is professional development for faculty, staff, and students. You need to look at all three, four of those areas and say, how are they doing? And what is the support? And whether or not people are just looking to you to figure out what all those 
those various quadrants are going to do are people within all of those quadrants empowering themselves and are people then leaning into what they've been exposed to engage with to determine whether or not um, the mission and vision of the task force represents the mission and vision of the institution and, and we're evolving and we're moving forward or is board head CFO, CEO, now all of a sudden in a different place where they're not demonstrating the stammer. Mm -hmm. That's the gauge, right? Because you're the consultant. If Mm -hmm. you're the one who's doing all of that, then what happens if you leave? What happens if you (laughs) leave? Right? There's only so much talking you could do and advising and coaching you could do. So if Mm. if the people don't take up and empower themselves to do the work and start defining what the roles are um, within and and in relation to those areas, whatever the institution is, then yeah, you're just going to be checking boxes. Mm. Good, good, good. I like David, especially your question, the part of your question that was about feeling, um, okay, this, this isn't genuine in, in one of these quadrants or in, you know, some other area and, um, recognizing, you know, as John said, there's, there's only so much talking that you can do, um, and I, you know, I want people to be able to have, um, you know, experiences. I'm, I was thrilled to read uh, a letter, and John, you'll be excited to hear this too. Um, the principal sent a letter to the Exeter community today saying, uh, and I think it was also signed by the chair of the board of trustees, but henceforth, uh, Phillips Exeter Academy will have need blind admissions, which is phenomenal because it took a lot of fundraising to build the endowment to the point where really we could admit the students we want to admit and access, of course, is one of the things we've been talking about this hour and then work out, you know, the balance of what families can't pay rather than needing some portion of full pay students, which has always been the case um, up until now. So that's, I mean, that's fantastic. Um, At least, you know, one more place in the world where those conversations, um, where conversations can happen in a intentionally constructed community that um, has, you know, representation from so many different perspectives. Um, as you've been saying, John, LGBTQ+, plus, uh, racial, ethnic, religious, um, geographic, uh, learning style differences, uh, right? It's one of your quadrants that you mentioned was teaching and learning. So um, that at least makes me feel um, optimistic. And I would, I'm, I know we're time now. I'm I'm so grateful for your time, John. Um, thank you so much for uh, 
you know, for joining us and sharing some wonderful ideas. And I hope that I get to see you in person soon. We're not too far from one another now that <laughs> we can do some more travel. Um, but I'll, I'll let David close it out and give John the final word here, but I just wanted to express my gratitude. I've learned a lot as always. Yeah, I took uh, <clears throat> quite a few uh, notes here. And so I will be going around trying to sound like I really know what I'm talking about. You know, uh, <laughs> so if you if you hear something you said, you know, just nod and say, "Yeah, that Davis is a smart guy." Yeah, oh, Damn, that was a good tweet. Is what Where does it he is. come up? Yeah, yeah. Man's amazing. You guys, here are the four areas. Listen, I thought yeah, about this. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> came up with this all on my own. Uh, but no, I mean, I I've really learned a lot and. Um, it's great to to be able to you know to talk to somebody who uh has the 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 thoughts that you have but the the guts to then go and and help other people to realize them um I'm really liking the thing about you know the stamina and 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 I think that goes um you know both ways that's for everybody to to have and so uh, I'm going to be working on some of that with myself because when you're saying that I could identify some places where, you know, maybe I need to do a few little push-ups, you know, in that area myself or, or go running or something, you know. So I'm gonna work on that too. So I, I wanna I just, you know, I'm saying all that to say thank you very much for, you know, your insights and your thoughts and for being a part uh of this conversation. I hope it inspires people to not just you know, check uh, boxes in their lives. Like, I think we do that a lot too, where it's just kind of like, um, you know, friend of another race, check. Uh, friend in the LGBTQ plus community, check, you know, whatever. And and not really uh, engage with the intent to make a compassionate human connection. And that's that's always my thing. Like, if we can start there, you'd be amazed at, you know, uh, what we can get to and what we can accomplish and how how many, um, you know, feet on this bridge we can build. So thanks again, John, and I'll leave it to you for the final word. I, I think at the end of the day, um, when I, you know, I think about, you know, I was adopted into a family of educators that dates back to before the Civil War. I was, mm. you know, I, I'm here on the shoulders of people that had uh, far more um, greater challenges to building bridges and the experience of enduring transient and structural othering than I can imagine. Um, but one of the things that I learned from them is you got to learn from mistakes. And at the end of the day, it's about how are you showing up to yourself and how are you showing up in other people's lives? And we need to really show up now because mm-hmm. um, not developing the self-awareness stamina um, and the leadership skills for ourselves, for people that we love, um, for the country and and globally um, means that we might not necessarily um, be able to say that we helped save each other from ourselves for the first time um, in our lifetimes, where that's a that's a real question, whether it's the environment, science, or social justice, and just being able to show up in each other's lives um, as the human beings that we should be. 
Thank you so much, John Davis, Director of Community and Equity Affairs and member of the English Department at St. Mark's School. So grateful for your wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John. All right. Take care. Thank Thank you for listening to I'm Black, You're White, Now What? You can find more episodes on the podcast channel Teaching What It Takes, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. To learn more about the work I do, visit www.preparingthepath.com. And to learn more about the work I do, visit drchristherber.com.